1: Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Siobhan Barco, the host of New Books in Law. Shannon McKergy, an economics student at Dartmouth College, is joining me for this interview. Today we will be discussing Happiness in the Law by John Bronstein, Christopher Buccafusco, and Jonathan S. Maser. Fusco, Associate Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Center for Empirical Studies of Intellectual Property at the Illinois Institute of Technology, Chicago, Kent College, is here to tell us about his book welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited.
1: Could you please begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became attracted to studying the intersections of law and social science?
0: Uh, Absolutely. So um, after uh, graduating from law school, uh, I moved up to Chicago to start a PhD at the University of Chicago, um, studying not law and psychology or social science, but in fact legal history. Uh, but it was while I was doing that uh, that I met uh, my two co-authors, John Bronstein and Jonathan Maser, uh, who uh, had, John had previously been working at the University of Chicago, and then Jonathan came in to start working there. Um, so I met both of them, and um, we hit it off as friends, uh, and then started to think about things we might be able to write about and places we might be able to collaborate uh, so, you know, this seemed to be a, an interesting opportunity, uh, when, uh, one day, many years ago, Eric Posner and Cass Sunstein, two faculty members at the University of Chicago, hosted a conference on, uh, happiness and the law, brought in a whole bunch of smart people, uh, and allowed us to sit in, uh, and, uh, we listened to the talks and had an idea for a paper that we could write. And that became our, our first paper on, Happiness and um, and Civil Settlements.
1: Would you please tell us how you came to write your current work, Happiness and the Law?
0: Yes. Yeah, so we started with this initial paper where we thought, you know, boy, this happiness research is really interesting. We should learn some more stuff about this. We were kind of fascinated by the field. Um, I think we all considered ourselves relatively happy people. Uh, and so thinking more about happiness seemed like a kind of fun thing to do in the law. Uh and the research was really interesting and really challenging to a lot of fundamental issues in the law. Um So we had all been kind of used to thinking about legal problems in terms of costs and benefits. And as we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about uh, at greater length, um, when you talk about costs and benefits, you tend to do so in the language of law and economics. And this is primarily a language of uh, of, of monetary costs and monetary benefits. Uh, and happiness research, hedonic psychology, uh, seemed to suggest that the ways that law and economics was attempting to measure various aspects of costs and benefits, well-being, uh, were systematically biased. Uh, and this struck us as a really interesting and rich field of, of research. Um, so we started off with the, the first paper on settlement law, Uh, and moved on to write about criminal law and administrative law and all sorts of things.
1: How does hedonic psychology measure human happiness?
0: Uh, It does it fairly straightforwardly, which is to say it asks people. Uh, So if you want to know how happy someone is, uh, one of the principal contributions of hedonic psychology is that the best way to learn that is to ask them. Um, You know, for at least since Jeremy Bentham, Uh, We've been trying to figure out what it means for people to have welfare or utility or for their lives to be going well for them. Um, And Bentham thought that, you know, eventually we would be able to come up with some kind of machine that basically summed up people's pleasures and pains uh, and that ultimately we could just use this to track how happy people were. Um, It turned out this took a little bit longer to develop than Bentham might have thought and so in the 20th century, many social scientists turned away from these kinds of um, direct questions about happiness and instead began to ask questions um, that used proxies um, for people's well-being, their welfare. Uh, so they looked instead at what people preferred uh, or what people purchased or what people did. Um, These are uh, measures of what we might call uh, people's revealed preferences, right? So if people choose apples more than oranges, presumably it's because apples make them happier than do oranges. Uh, And this has been the dominant method for thinking about people's welfare uh, in economics and to a large extent in law and economics since the 1920s or 30s. Uh, And it's only since the really the 1980s or 90s when uh, um, a number of psychologists and economists and other behavioral scientists thought, "hmm, instead of thinking about people's decision utility, the the utility that they seem to have based on what they decide, what if we could measure their experienced utility, the actual pleasure that they get from different experiences?" And so this led to the development of different methods of measuring, what they call subjective well-being, how happy people decide or declare they are. So if I can explain, there are two kind of basic methods for, for doing this. Um, one method asks uh, kind of broad-based um, life satisfaction questions. So on a scale of one to seven, how happy are you these days? Or how satisfied are you with your life these days? A psychologist likes sevens. Uh often sometimes they're scales of four, sometimes they're scales of ten, right? Uh the scales range, but uh, you know on some scale of not at all happy to very happy, uh or not at all satisfied to very satisfied, how satisfied are you these days? These get a kind of holistic large picture of people's well-being. Uh, other types of measures, however, uh instead of looking at large scale um satisfaction, attempt to assess people in a moment-by-moment sort of way. So um, some of the cleverest of these involve uh, using smartphones, which will beep you at random times throughout the day and ask you, what are you doing right now and how happy are you? Uh, and so rather than getting a kind of large-scale estimate of your life these days, it gives a very fine-grained um, measure of how happy you are right now taking care of the children, um, playing softball, um, being at work, studying for an exam, those sorts of things. Uh, But they all rely on people um, articulating something about their own happiness or well-being or satisfaction.
1: Why have social scientists come to rely on these new forms of measurement and to trust the findings that emerge from them?
0: So one of the so a key feature of thinking about the value of hedonic psychology for uh, social science uh, and just as much for the law is um, questions associated with pragmatics uh, or, um, as I like to think about it, compared to what? Right, so these questions don't give us perfect answers. Right? Uh the ways that we ju- that I just mentioned for measuring people's uh happiness don't measure directly their utility. Right? These are not electrodes implanted in their brains picking up, you know, little blips of pleasure here and there, little blips of pain. The real question is, um how good are they compared to the other tools that we have? Uh what are the other methods that we have for comparing how happy people are? how much welfare they have, and how do these, you know, what are the strengths and benefits of those? Um, so this is one of the things that we think is really exciting. Um, not that we've got, you know, the, the, the direct line into people's subconscious, uh, but rather we've got a better proxy for um, for happiness than, than the other kinds of methods. So the other kinds of methods, the ones that are, uh, you know, primarily adopted in, in economics, for example, um, like I said, require people's you know, revealed preferences. Right? Do people buy apples more than oranges or oranges more than apples? Uh, that works pretty well for a lot of things, right? So it works really well for apples and oranges. Uh, why? Well, because we have a lot of experience consuming apples and oranges. Apples are mostly the same, right? Oranges are mostly the same. You know, after you eat two or three of both, you've got a pretty good sense of which one you prefer, Um This is not necessarily the case with, uh, lots of other things, right? So, you know, most of us don't pick too many spouses, right? Uh, and so don't get a lot of really rich, uh, estimate of, you know, what different kinds of spouses bring to the table. Um, most of us, uh, don't, you know, spend a lot of time choosing, um, aspects of our jobs based on kind of very small levels of risk that are associated with them, right? So if one of the things we want to understand is uh, how do people value their lives and their safety, we might look at whether they choose job A or job B when job A is a little safer but pays less and job B is a little you know, more dangerous but pays more, right? But people might not be very good at estimating those things, right? They might have to understand how risky it is. How bad will the injury be? How much will this money compensate for that suffering? Uh, And it turns out when you run the hedonic psychology studies, people are terrible at all of that stuff. They're really, really bad at estimating low levels of risk. They're really, really bad at estimating the hedonic consequences of future actions. And they're really, really bad at estimating the kind of trade-offs between money and happiness that they're likely to need to compensate for for the suffering that they experience. Uh, and so, you know, given all the problems that these things have, uh, we're excited about the opportunities that hedonic psychology brings to the table um, to answer those kinds of questions better.
1: Could you tell us some of the things these studies have revealed?
0: Yeah, of course. Um, So, you know, scientists have been doing research on happiness now since, you know, the late 80s or so in a a fairly systematic way. Um, And there are a number of key findings. Um, One of the key findings is that uh, people tend to adapt to a lot of circumstances in their lives uh, much more rapidly than they anticipate. Uh, So uh, the effects of both good and bad changes in people's lives tend to be uh, surprisingly weak, Uh, which is to say they tend not to be nearly as uh, severe in terms of their magnitude, uh, and they tend not to last nearly as long as people think they will. Uh, So, for example, uh, people who suffer a variety of serious injuries Often return to um, a kind of pre injury level of happiness or close to it within two or three years. Maybe not all the way back, right? Maybe only 50% back, um, but they often recover very quickly. The same is true on the opposite end, right? People who have uh, increases in their income uh, often don't experience substantial improvements in their happiness over long periods of time. Right. They might initially get some bump, but they tend to revert back to their pre, uh, you know, pre-income increased level of happiness fairly closely. Right. And it turns out it takes an awful lot of additional income then to make people considerably happier. Right over about forty or fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year, right, additional increases in income have very small influences on people's life satisfaction and maybe no influence whatsoever on their kind of moment-by-moment affect. Um, So we see this kind of hedonic adaptation uh, in many cases. Also, in some cases, um, a kind of surprising inability to adapt. Uh, So there have been a number of studies which have suggested uh, that there are some sorts of things like ringing in the ears uh, or low-level chronic pain. Pain uh, or um, other kinds of kind of what we would normally think of as not terribly serious injuries—at least not when compared to say paraplegia—that um, people really don't adapt to. They have long-lasting influences on their their happiness. Um, unemployment seems to be another situation in which, uh, at least as a matter of life satisfaction, even once people are reemployed. They tend to still suffer some kind of hedonic penalty. Right. So we see people tending to adapt an awful lot to the circumstances in which they find themselves. Um, but importantly, they often ignore this. Right. So there's a wealth of literature on uh, what are called affective forecasting errors. Right. So affective means emotional here, right. Forecasting means predictive. So these are the errors that people make, uh, predicting their future states. Right. So it turns out, you know, that, you know, people who, uh, um, have to experience a reversible colostomy, um, are not really, don't really consider their lives to be that much worse off than they were before. Um, they do think it's worse. They clearly think it's worse. Uh, but not nearly as much as, the, you know, uh, as say healthy people would predict. Why? Well, people don't tend to predict the degree to which they're going to adapt. So healthy people, people who've never experienced a colostomy, think that's like a really, really terrible thing. And it is a bad thing. It's just not as bad as people tend to anticipate it will be. And so people make a variety of affective forecasting errors, which suggest that they are not doing a very good job about choosing, about predicting um, their future happiness states, right? Now you can kind of see why we're anxious about these kinds of economic measures of welfare, which are all about choice, all about what people pick. If it turns out and people aren't very good at picking, then they're probably not doing a very good, then, then their choices are probably not very good proxies for how their lives are going.
1: What are some of the most common questions about and objections to the use of happiness research in law?
0: Uh, this is good, right? So there, there, there are plenty. As you can imagine, um, we, we we spend a lot of our time um, defending the 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 science and the data here. Um, you know, a lot of it is outside of our ken. Uh, but I think you know there are there are very good um, very good discussions to be had about this. And you know, I want to encourage listeners to keep in mind, uh, right? This is all about you know compared to what, right? Compared to the other potential um, uh, measures on the table. Right. So one of the objections that people consistently make is uh, that, um, you know, your happiness is different from my happiness. Right. And the understanding whatever makes you happy is just completely different from whatever makes me happy. Uh, and so, you know, there's you, know, you like reading books, you know, and I like, you know, drinking bourbon. Right. You know, we'll never figure out what makes any of us happy. Right. Um, and, you know, sure. That's clearly true. People have different preferences about the kinds of things that make them happy. Um, But that doesn't mean that they're not also perfectly good about telling us how happy they are when they're doing these sorts of things. Right. So, you know, reading books might make you a six out of seven uh, and it only makes me a four out of seven. Um, But, you know, We've figured that out now, and we can figure out the differences between people about the kinds of things that certain groups value and the kinds of things that other groups value. Relatedly, there are a set of objections about whether, you know, you and I are using the scales in the same way, right? Like maybe when you say that uh, you're a six out of seven, that means something wildly different from what I say when I'm a six out of seven. Again. Surely this is a possibility. Right? You know, however you interpret these things uh, might certainly be different. Um, keep in mind the relevant comparison is you know, how much money you have. Right? This would be the economic measure. Uh, and I think it's entirely clear that whether you have $100,000 or whether I have $100,000, we might be made very differentially happy by the same amount of money. Right, you might be the kind of person who you know is perfectly happy to you know live in a hut and you know dollars don't make any significant difference to you. You're the book reading person, right? So you know as long as you've got a library card, you're perfectly happy. One hundred thousand dollars doesn't make a big difference. Uh, whereas for me, you know, I really want to spend lots and lots of money on stuff, so I need even more than that. Right? So in in terms of happiness, it's sure it's possible that there are differences. Um, but we don't think that these things are um, overwhelming. So for a couple of reasons. Um, one, uh, there's lots of good evidence suggesting that uh, these things are, in fact, very good um, measures of exactly the kinds of concepts we think they are. Right. So we talked about these two different kinds of happiness, life satisfaction and um uh, and moment by moment measures, well, it turns out they're fairly well correlated, as you would expect they would be, right? Two measures that are basically a measuring the same kind of thing. Uh, and it turns out, you know, people who are high in one tend to be high in the other, right? Other kinds of things suggest you know that, that we have a kind of relatively strong validity here. And right? so when you have bad health, you're less happy, right? as we would predict. Right? When you get divorced, you're less happy. When you get married, you're happier. Right. So at least in general, we have, you know, th- there's kind of responses to objective circumstances seem consistent uh, and also lots of other kinds of measures. Right? So it turns out your statements about your happiness uh, are highly correlated both with um, your friends' statements about how happy you are and also with how often you smile during the day. Uh, right? So, again, we think. That seems to be a good reason uh, to 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 suspect that these are you know valid data uh, for lots of the kinds of purposes that we would want to put them to um, you know, people object as well that yeah you know, um, happiness is not the only concern of the law uh, that you know improving people's lives is not the only thing the law should care about uh, this is again obviously true uh, right? the law might care about lots of different things um, importantly though, it's really, really, really hard to find someone who doesn't think that the law should at least care about this, right? When people think about the various things that law should care about, you know, not all of them think, and we don't think, that happiness is the only thing that matters, right? But it's very difficult to find someone who thinks that happiness is irrelevant, right? Almost everyone thinks that how happy people are is at least part of what law should care about. And so our contribution is to help fill in legal gaps about those kinds of things, right? And we leave it to other people to figure out other questions about the other kinds of things that law should care about. Distribution of resources, justice, fairness, you know, those kinds of things. Um, so you know, there's lots of good debates, and uh, discussions to be had about uh, the appropriate role of happiness data. Um, but, you know, we think, you know, we're doing better and better every day in terms of the quality of the data that are available and the kinds of questions that they can answer.
1: How can happiness data be used to assess most laws and policies?
0: Right. So this is where we think we're making a a valuable contribution to the literature on analyzing the effects of laws and policies and regulations. Uh, We propose in the book um, what we call well-being analysis, which is an attempt to use happiness data to uh, analyze the likely welfare effects of any given proposed legislation or regulation. Uh, the idea is that with well-being analysis, we'll be able to supplement uh, and perhaps eventually replace a cost-benefit analysis as the government's principal tool for understanding what it should be doing. Um, So imagine a proposed workplace safety regulation. Uh, If we're trying to think about whether this proposed workplace safety regulation is a good idea using traditional economic cost-benefit analysis, then um, we need to figure out how to compare the costs of this kinds of this kind of regulation with its benefits. Um, okay, so what are the costs? Uh, well, the principal cost in a case like this is going to be compliance. Uh, companies that are affected by the regulation are going to have to figure out how to comply with these kinds of costs. They may have to hire more people to supervise. They may have to install safer mechanisms for this and that. It kind of depends on what the regulation is, right? Uh, So they're going to spend some money figuring out uh, how to comply with the new regulation. Um, That money that the companies spend will have various effects. Uh, It could increase the price of consumer goods. Uh, If it increases them too high, it could lead to unemployment. But traditional cost-benefit analysis will just attempt to come up with a number that represents the costs of this regulation, typically in terms of its compliance, measured in dollars. Uh, Then it will have to figure out, well, what are the benefits of the regulation? The benefits of the regulation is that fewer people are going to die at work. Fewer people are going to get seriously injured at work. Um, How do you figure out how much that's worth? Human arms are not sold on most markets. How much is a human arm worth? Human lives are not sold on most markets. How much is a life worth? Uh, And so at this point, uh, cost-benefit analysis has to uh, resort to uh, the kinds of tools that we talked about earlier. Attempts to measure the value of people's lives, uh, happiness, welfare, um, safety, and health using um, monetary proxies. So what do those people choose, right? When they choose job A and job over job B, um, that can give us some sense of how they value the risks associated with them. When they choose to, you know, buy cars with various safety features that cost money, this gives us measures of, right? But if people are not good at this, right, these become not very good proxies for how their lives are going. And this is where well-being analysis steps in to supplement Uh, or replace cost-benefit analysis. It operates on the same fundamental balancing principle, which is to say um, we want to compare the costs of this regulation with its benefits. And generally speaking, if the benefits exceed the costs, then that's a good thing. And, you know, it's a strong point in favor of the regulation. Um, Instead of attempting to uh monetize all these effects right because the problem here is as always you know we need a a single currency right we need to be able to get everything into uh comparable units cost benefit analysis uses dollars our approach instead is to hedonize all of the effects to take all of these effects and turn them into what we call well-being units which is the extent to which a person is made more or less happy, has increased well-being or decreased well-being for a unit of time. A year, for example. Right? Uh, measured on a scale from negative 10 to positive 10, where negative 10 is the worst possible thing you can imagine. Zero is indifference. Plus 10 is, you know, the happiest thing one can possibly imagine. Um, and so now what do we need to do is we need to use prevailing happiness data, uh, to measure all of those same costs and benefits, but now in hedonic rather than monetary terms. So think about the increased costs to consumers that they're going to have to pay due to this regulation, right? Compliance was expensive. Those costs get passed on to consumers. Now consumers pay $5 a year more for paper goods than they would have otherwise. and. Um, How much does that affect people? Uh, What is the hedonic effect of that additional cost on on people, uh, on consumers? Uh, Maybe instead or in addition, um, the increased compliance costs mean that uh, firms can't hire as many workers or have to put some number of workers out of jobs. Uh, How the, the hedonic effects of unemployment. So estimate the number of workers who are likely to be unemployed by the regulation and measure how happy or, in this case, unhappy they're likely to be made and for how long. So compute the average number of lost well-being units associated with uh, worker unemployment. So this will then give us a kind of combined estimate of the hedonic costs of the regulation. Now we have to look at the other side of the letter. What are the hedonic benefits of the regulation? And we want to look at how many lives are going to be saved, right? How many people who, you know, would have lived to 70 or 80, um, or, you know, would have, you know, would without the regulation have lived to 30 or 40, now maybe going to live to 70 or 80, right? Um, how many people are not going to suffer from, you know, lost limbs, you know, slipping and falling, other kinds of injuries that they might suffer at work? Uh, And how happy is that going to make them? Uh, And again, because we've got good data on lots of these kinds of things, we can estimate the number of well-being units that workers are likely to be saved uh, by the proposed regulation. And now we do the same kind of cost-benefit analysis. We we compare the number of well-being units on the cost side of the ledger with the number of well-being units on the benefit side of the ledger, And if the benefits predominate, that's a strong reason for thinking it's a good piece of legislation. It's a good proposal. Uh, And so we can do this for all sorts of things now. And as we get better data, we can do it for even more. So we can do this not just for workplace safety regulation, uh, but for uh, regulation of, uh, you know, chemical toxins in the water supply or in the air, um, for safety regulations of cars, uh, to measurements of the, uh, you know, successes and failures of the criminal justice or the civil justice system. Um, as we generate more data, we'll be able to engage in sophisticated analyses of lots of aspects of uh, legal decision making. This is the goal we're aiming at.
1: In what ways has the new data on happiness revealed a need to rethink criminal punishment?
0: Uh, This is a really important question for us. Um, It's heartening to see the extent to which uh, Americans seem interested in um, developing a conversation about um, incarceration procedures in the United States. Uh, And... We think this is a conversation uh, about which happiness research has a lot to say uh, and a lot to add. Um, One of the central features of uh, punishing someone is understanding how that punishment affects them. Um, This might not be the only thing that matters, but as with basically everything in the law, it's a big deal of what matters. Uh, So, to what extent are people affected by uh, their experiences of punishment? And this matters depending you know, regardless of your uh, kind of theoretical persuasion when it comes to why we punish people. And so if you are uh, a utilitarian, uh, then uh, your approach to punishment is that um, we need to make people suffer enough so that they don't want to commit crimes. But no more than that. So our goal is to produce optimal deterrence so that uh, people decide not to uh, engage in parking violations, larceny, rape, murder. Uh, And so we need to make punishments substantially uh, unpleasant, uh, such that people don't want to do it. Uh, And so if that's the case, we need to know something about how people experience punishment and how they think about the experience of punishment. Now, if you're not a utilitarian, if you're a retributivist, uh, you probably should be thinking about these kinds of questions as well. The goal of retributivism uh, is um, kind of ex-post approach. We want to figure out what degree of punishment does this person deserve based on the wrongdoing that they've caused. And so if that's the case, the more wrongdoing that you've engaged in, the more punishment you deserve. There needs to be some way of scaling some degree of punishment. It would be wrong from a retributive perspective if we punished murderers the same way we punished jaywalkers. Murderers deserve more punishment than jaywalkers. Um, So, again, you should probably have some idea about how... The experience of imprisonment, which in the United States is the central mechanism for uh, uh, how we punish people criminally, um, affects folks. Uh, and it turns out the happiness data uh, can begin to provide us some really interesting insight on what's going on in um, prison. Uh, and so what we seem to find is this. Uh people go into prison and prison is an enormously terrible experience for them. Uh, from a kind of um, emotional perspective uh, entering into prison is, is very bad for people. Uh, this is associated with high degrees of suicide, depression, uh, lots and lots of, you know, uh, really bad outcomes. Uh, as time goes on, however, people seem to adapt uh, fairly substantially to the experience of being in prison. Right? Such that, you know, imagine a 10-year sentence, uh, the second five years of being in prison are not likely to be nearly as bad as the first five years. Right? That the the pains of imprisonment are substantially front-loaded. So if we think that by punishing people 10 years, uh, we're going to be producing twice as much negative experience as punishing them five years. Unlikely to be the case, right? And so this matters if you're a utilitarian or you're uh, um, a retributivist. If you're a utilitarian, you know this might be good, right? You don't have to punish people nearly as bad if they don't realize that they're not going to suffer that much, right? Maybe if people don't get this, then 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 this is a good thing. We don't actually have to punish people as bad as as we thought we did. Um, this requires us to learn a little bit more about what. Uh, offenders and particularly recidivists have in mind when it comes to uh their experiences of prison and again if you're a retributivist this should matter right if you think that um yeah murder is twice as bad as burglary I'm not saying that it is right if you happen to think this right you want a punishment that is twice as bad for the murderer than for the 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 burglar um, well Merely scaling the punishment up in terms of uh, the time spent in prison seems like it's not going to do a terribly good job about that. So we see people adapting substantially to their time in prison. There's another important effect that seems to be going on as well. Um, When people go into prison, uh, they experience, when they're released, a variety of negative circumstances which seem to produce substantial diminutions of their well-being and which seem to arise irrespective of the amount of time that they were in prison. So if people spend at least a year in prison, it turns out, um, they are likely to suffer from um, a variety of difficult to adapt to uh, uh, health disorders, including hepatitis C. HIV and AIDS, a variety of kinds of things that will be hard for them to adapt to. Uh, they're likely to be much less employable and likely to be in and out of the labor market on a much more regular basis. Uh, so this means that the negative effects of unemployment that we discussed earlier are likely to um, affect uh, ex-prisoners as well. Finally, they tend to experience high degrees of breakdowns in social and family relations. We know that social and family relationships are one of the strongest predictors of um, how happy people are. So now what do we see? A whole bunch of people who, having been released from prison, um, don't go back to their pre-imprisonment level of happiness. That uh, the, the pains of imprisonment continue on after the time that they've spent in jail. Um, in a way that, that will substantially affect their well-being, and again, because this is these these effects seem to be largely irrespective of the amount of time they spent in prison, right, this is going to further blunt uh, the law's capacities to engage in differential sentencing. Right? If everybody who's been in prison for at least two years, or at least a lot of people who've been in prison for two years, are going to suffer these various negative hedonic outcomes when they are released, it's going to be very difficult to to make uh, um, gradations in degrees of punishment. Uh, And so trying to understand how people respond to punishment, uh, how they respond to uh, uh, imprisonment, um, is a key feature of understanding what the law should be doing, uh, and it enters, I think, very strongly into uh, contemporary debates about mass incarceration, the role of prison, uh, and um, the degree to which prison is negatively affecting people once they reemerge into society.
1: What do you think the future holds for happiness research? Well, so
0: one of the things I I, I hope it holds, uh, and I think it, you know. The, The evidence seems to suggest this is more and better data collection. Uh, So uh, more and more countries are including uh, happiness related questions in their general social surveys uh, that are going out um, every year to thousands of people. Um, There are increasing numbers of surveys that are uh, directed at populations that we as lawyers might be particularly interested in. minority populations populations who are uh you know more likely to be affected by one area of the law or another um, you know immigrant populations, people who we really you know might want to know an awful lot about uh, in order to understand uh, how um how the law affects them uh, and so we think that this is a really terrific thing. Uh, one thing that would be really great is increased support and effort towards moment-by-moment uh, moment data collection. So most of the, the large-scale social surveys ask these you know life satisfaction questions. How's your life going these days? And then they tend to use either regression analyses to compare that question with your income and the number of kids you have and whether you have jobs and these kinds of things. Uh, it would be really helpful, though, if there were more fine-grained analyses about um, how people experience their lives not just because we think that's often better data but often it can help us answer um, maybe more specific questions that are relevant to the law um, in terms of how people spend their time what they experience when they're spending their time you know, at work or in the park or um, commuting the kinds of things that uh, law often regulates um, as a matter of Law and happiness, uh, we see a number of different areas in which um, there are opportunities for expansion and development. No surprise, right? You know, when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Uh, but, you know, most of the kinds of questions in law are these kinds of, you know, comparison questions about costs and benefits. So we're hoping that that uh, happiness research can, can do an important job of adding to many fields, including um intellectual property law, um, the study of constitutional law and constitutional torts, uh, and civil rights and liberties. Um, you know, It's kind of hard to think of areas of the law uh, where uh, happiness research might not be, you know, won't be very important. Thinking about you know, the effects of the law for the elderly, as we have an increasingly aging population. Uh, I already mentioned immigration. Um, so it seems like there are lots of opportunities here as we continue to develop better and better data to to start to ask and answer questions about how well the law is doing at uh, improving people's lives. Um, I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that it's only really been guessing up until now. Uh, but it hasn't been doing an awful, awful lot better than that. Uh, and so um, you know, hopefully with improved data uh, and uh, renewed focus, we will do an awful lot better than just guessing.
1: Professor Buccafusco, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it.
0: Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate your uh, attention to our book and uh, the opportunity to discuss it.